to my town from all over the world, and their faces tell more of the story of Hollywood than a thousand words. Since the beginning of movies, an endless parade of faces has moved across the screen, and among the host of them, only one, I think, has the right to be called a legend. The tall Swedish girl whom MGM hired for $250 a week after changing her name from Gustafsson to Garbo. And that's the way she looked when she first arrived. Then she went on to become Anna Karenin, Mavahari, Queen Christina, and the great Camille. You know, it was a stroke of good fortune to get into a Garbo picture, and I finally made it. I played her sister in As You Desire Me, and for a brief time, she dropped her shyness, and I found behind the legend the person. Warm, charming, intelligent, all the things I'd been told by the people who had worked with her. You're listening to episode 81, part four of the Sassmouth Dame series on Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In 1935, Hedda Hopper was 50 years old and by all accounts, a failure in her profession, a washed up actress. She was by then making $1,000 for a picture where she had once earned $1,000 a week. For the first half of the 1930s, Hedda Hopper was a Jane of all trades. She did everything she could to keep a roof over herself and her son in private school. But Hedda was long used to hard work, from her miserable childhood under a father and grandfather who believed women were beasts of burden. She had refused the male opinion then, and she held steadfast when the moguls decided she was past her shelf life. Rather than fall into the gutter, Hedda dug her heels in, worked her tail off, and reinvented herself. In the past, she had given a steady stream of juicy tips from inside the film colony to Luella Parsons, who repaid Hedda with favorable mentions as far back as the late teens and early 20s. After two decades as an actress, Hedda had worked with nearly everyone in Hollywood, and she knew their secrets. Initially, Hedda's column failed. So did her first try at radio. Women who were executives in film and radio told Hedda to stop flattering the stars and to start telling the truth. The radical shift in Hedda's fortunes are evident on screen by the end of the 1930s. She had small but standout roles in two of the best pictures from 1939. By 1941, Hedda had surpassed Luella Parsons in scoops and industry recognition as the new queen of gossip. She moved from a modest bungalow to a mansion in Beverly Hills. She referred to it as the house that fear built. When we last left Hedda in part two, she'd been struggling to make ends meet in 1926. She had never received a dime of support from her ex-husband, Broadway star DeWolf Hopper. For Hedda, it was important to keep her son Bill in private school. Since she was forced to leave school at 14, she placed a premium on education. She insisted that Bill would have the best chance for a bright future. In the early 1920s, Hedda was a house guest for a weekend in Arrowhead Springs. Another guest was a palm reader. She looked at Hedda's hand. Then she put on her glasses and took another look. The palmist conclusion came by the way of exclamation. My dear girl, you're in the wrong business. You're not an actress, you're a writer. The woman with second sight told Hedda that she wouldn't start writing until she neared 50, but that it would bring her greater success than she had known and that she would die writing. It would take Hedda more than a decade to connect the dots. By the end of the 1920s, Hedda had joined the craze for trading in the stock market that was fashionable in the film colony. 
She didn't know how, but the money just seemed to grow overnight. In 1928, with cash rolling in from the stock market, had a sail to Europe with Francis Marion. From the ship, she continued her habit of feeding tips to Luella Parsons. Hedda sent a menu autographed with fond messages from Francis Marion, Dolores Del Rio, and the agent Paul Coner, who were all making the passage together. For years, Hedda had sent Luella spicy items for her column because they had been friends in New York and because Hedda knew that Luella would do what she could to boost her name and her column. During Hedda's six-week European holiday in 1928, Luella printed six items that mentioned Hedda by name. During the trip, they visited Max Reinhardt's chateau in Salzburg. When he entered and Francis went to stand up like everyone else in the room, Hedda pulled her by the seat of her dress and told her to remain seated. Francis stood again, claiming when in Rome. Hedda was having none of it. She replied that they weren't in Rome. Hedda declared, I'm upholding the independence of American womanhood. They shouldn't stand for a man. In some ways, I think that this attitude transferred to her approach as a columnist. In her memoir, Frances Marion noted that Hedda met the love of her life during this trip. If you read about Hedda, it's fairly shocking how little dirt there is connected to the opposite sex in her life story. She didn't play around with men in Hollywood, but on the voyage across the sea, Hedda met an artist, a handsome painter. He was European and also very married. They were inseparable aboard the ship. The artist kept changing his plans so that he could follow Hedda. When they docked, Francis and Hedda were off to Paris, and he tagged along, saying he had to show Hedda the Paris he adored. He followed them to London and did the same thing. Frances Marion begged Hedda to have an affair. She told Hedda, for heaven's sake, throw your panties over the windmill. She tried to reason with her that she was a grown, independent woman. There was no earthly reason to deny herself this passion and pleasure. Not long after Frances and Hedda returned to Hollywood, the artist appeared, begging Hedda to run off with him. They could live in Europe, he said, and forget about convention. But Hedda stood her ground. It wasn't right. She couldn't picture herself as a kept woman abroad. Frances Marion wrote in her memoir that she couldn't release the man's name because he killed himself after he left Hollywood. She implies he did it because Hedda refused him. When the stock market crashed in 1929, Hedda heard the report on the radio. Then her stockbroker telephoned to deliver the bad news. Every penny she had was gone. She was wiped out. Instead of jumping out the window, she pulled a book of verse off the shelf, opened it to Shelley's poem to a skylark, and read it over and over until she grew calm. Marion Davies rang with an invitation to win tune, Hearst's retreat modeled after a Bavarian chalet. For two weeks, Hedda walked, she read the Shelley poem, and she tried to figure out her next move. During the return trip, there was a layover in San Francisco. Marion Davies took Hedda shopping, along with the five other women who had been guests in the Mountain Refuge. They went to the finest shops in San Francisco. Marion bought all six of them, new coats, dresses, hats, gloves, shoes, and purses. Hedda might have been broke, but she was enriched by having good friends. Another good friend, Frances Marion, whom Hedda called Fan and Fanny, paid her son Bill's tuition when Hedda was struggling to recover her losses. At least she still had her MGM contract and worked steadily through the transition to sound. The arrival of sound was no problem for Hedda. She had long ago had her Pennsylvania accent browbeaten out of her by her snobby husband, Wolfie. She felt safe under contract in MGM and was often on loan out to other studios. Over a long acting career, Hedda worked with everyone. 
Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell, Marion Davies, Colleen Moore, Clara Bow, Gary Cooper, John Barrymore, Joan Crawford, Norma Shearer, Greta Garbo, Marie Dressler, Gloria Swanson, Constance Bennett, Joan Bennett, Joel McRae, Cary Grant, Clark Gable, Mel Douglas, Warren William, Catherine Hepburn, Fred McMurray, Adolf Manjou, May Clark, Paulette Goddard, Mary Astor, and Claudette Colbert are just some of the stars she worked with. In MGM's picture, Let Us Be Gay from 1930, Hedda Hopper plays a society dame on a manhunt. The lady of the house, Marie Dressler, asks her niece, played by Norma Shearer, to play competition for the man and keep the man trap from landing him. Hedda and Norma are rivals for a man. Need I mention that Norma Shearer was 28 years old and Hedda was 45? She doesn't look a day over 35 in this picture. She is as lean as a tulip stalk, robed in exquisite clothes from Adrian. Hedda worked with everyone in MGM and was loaned out so many times she worked with half the actors in town. She might have been able to dine out for years talking about how she played Greta Garbo's sister in As You Desire Me in 1932. Hedda noted that one of the things that set Garbo apart on screen was that a split second before she went into a clinch with a leading man, Garbo held out her arms and embraced him. Hedda saw it as the difference between European and American women, and it made Garbo a standout. She made the first move. During production of As You Desire Me, Hedda conspired with Adrian to get a hat approved for Garbo. Hollywood historians mention the artistic freedom that Adrian enjoyed for his costume design, but that was mostly from the front office in terms of budgetary approval. On set, directors might and did make an objection to his designs. Hedda recalled that she met with Adrian to put a pillbox hat over for Garbo's scene in a train station. Hedda walked on set one day wearing an outrageous artichoke confection done entirely in blue satin ribbon. The director, George Fitzmaurice, took one look at the hat Adrian designed and lost it. He told Hedda she couldn't wear it. Why not, she protested. Because no one will look at anything else, the director replied. Hedda persisted. Can I not have a few crumbs of glory to myself and wear the hat, she asked. Fitzmaurice ordered Hedda back to wardrobe. Two minutes later, Garbo arrived wearing the white pillbox hat. Fitzmaurice was dumbstruck. Hedda explained that not even he could damn two hats inside of two minutes. The pillbox stayed, and you can see how useful it is for tracking Garbo through a, a scene in a crowded station. And Hedda got to keep the blue artichoke hat. In 1932, when Hedda's contract in MGM was up for renewal, the studio dropped their option. She was one of the first people to sign with Mayer when MGM was founded, and Hedda suddenly felt herself drifting along like an untouchable once she was no longer under contract. As far as the other studios were concerned, if MGM didn't want her, they didn't want her either. At this point, Hedda was encouraged to run for office by Ida Coverman, Louis B. Mayer's secretary, who has been described as she damn near ran the studio. Coverman had worked for years campaigning for a Republican Party. Coverman arrived originally in California to campaign for Hoover's initial bid for presidency, and she reached out to other women to swing the vote for Hoover. After Hoover won the ticket, Louis B. Mayer hired Ida as his executive assistant. Ida and Hedda got on famously. When a country, uh, sorry, when a county commissioner seat opened, Ida galvanized Hedda's run. Hedda Hopper might not have had any direct experience in politics, but she had plenty of experience in show business and put in a bid for office that grabbed notice. Hedda hired a group of handsome young men to distribute flyers and 20 pretty girls to hand out leaflets with slogans such as, Hop to it for Hedda. The Los Angeles Times endorsed Hedda for office. 
May Murray stumped for Hedda. In a speech that followed, Hedda introduced herself to a crowd in the Biltmore Hotel rally by saying she was running as a mother, a wage earner, and a head of household. Hedda told the crowd that every woman must work for her country and her convictions. Hedda lost the election, but she learned a great deal about how political campaigns work. Hedda sold real estate periodically during this period. She worked for a short time for a talent agency, but didn't like the work. Maybe she felt like she was on the wrong side of the negotiation table. She had been acting in pictures since 1916, after all. She very nearly took a job with an escort service for lonely women at one point. She modeled clothes. She gave a Polish actor voice lessons. She went back to the stage. Then she was introduced by one of the lawyers in MGM to Elizabeth Arden. The studio mouthpiece thought they would be a good fit together. Elizabeth Arden liked the idea of having a seasoned actress on staff to give lectures to her clients about the Hollywood beauty regimen. Hedda's studio training stayed with her for life. She had the discipline to diet and exercise and keep her waistline up, up until the day she died. She believed heart and soul in the curative powers of glamour. She looked like a film star. Before she started working for the beauty magnet, Hedda was cast in a Broadway play and arranged a delayed start with Elizabeth Arden. Hedda appeared in the play as sister to the star Judith Anderson in Divided by Three, a woman's play about the strain of family life on a woman who has an illicit affair. The big dramatic moment occurs when the son, played by newcomer Jimmy Stewart, calls his mother a whore. The backstage dramatics, though, probably outdid the rest of the play. Judith Anderson reportedly entertained the cast by performing spot-on impressions of Hedda and froze her out of curtain calls and failed to invite Hedda to the after party. After the show closed, MGM's casting director, Rufus Lemaire, asked her if she had spotted anyone good out there. Hedda dropped Jimmy Stewart's name, and in short order, he was in Hollywood under contract with Metro. Hedda worked her tail off for Arden, learning all aspects of the beauty culture and treatments. During the Christmas rush, Hedda put in long days without a break. She was peeved that Arden hadn't hired on extra help for the busy period, just to save a few dollars. Hedda was wrapping parcels like mad on Christmas Eve, when Elizabeth Arden swanned in, took one look at Hedda, and declared, You look awful! Hedda put the package down and left the salon. Later that night, she wired her resignation. No job was worth ruining her looks and her health. Early in 1935, Hedda had her first falling out with Luella Parsons. At one social event, Hedda was asked for her real age. She replied that she was one year younger than the youngest age Luella admitted to being. For Hedda, it was just a joke, a throwaway comment, but the woman reported it to Luella, who was hurt and offended. Hedda was surprised by her friend's reaction. She sent flowers and apologized. After a few weeks, they reconciled. By the mid-1930s, Hedda benefited from a network of professional and well-connected women. Hedda is noted for her feuds more so than her friendships, but nearly every lucky break or boost to her career came from successful women, such as Frances Marion, Ida Coverman, Sissy Patterson, and Dima Harshbarger. In 1935, during one of her many weekend visits to San Simeon, Hedda chatted with a group that included Sissy Patterson. Hedda noted in her memoir that it was the only time that a job was handed to her on a silver platter. Sissy Patterson was the editor of the Washington Herald. She was powerful, industrious, and influential. She could have been just another society dame who settled for a life of luxury, doing little more than going to her dressmakers. But Sissy worked hard as the paper's owner and publisher. 
Hedda had been giving the group the latest gossip from Hollywood. Sissy turned to her and said, why don't you write that? Hedda objected that she couldn't even spell, let alone write. Sissy decided that anyone who could talk that fast would make a good columnist. Sissy alleviated Hedda's concern by saying that she could dictate it. Luella Parsons ran a brief item in her column which noted that Hedda had signed with Sissy to do a weekly column on Hollywood fashion. Hedda filed her copy for $50 a week. After four months, Sissy asked Hedda to accept a pay cut of $15, and Hedda lost interest. For her next move, Hedda cast her eye towards radio. She had a friend who was a talent agent for radio. Hedda appealed to her for work. The woman told her that the person she really needed to see was Dima Harshbarger. Dima was an executive with NBC Radio, the head of their artist bureau with headquarters in Hollywood. Hailing from Chicago, Dima had pioneered a civic music program at a national level, broadcast in 400 cities. Dima had originally buttonholed Samuel Insull as a backer and left his office with a check for $50,000 to start the project. In the end, NBC bought Dima out for a quarter million and then hired her to run their artist bureau in Hollywood. Hedda had tried to wheedle an appointment with Dima until finally the friend admitted that Dima was not interested in meeting Hedda. In Hedda's version, she sped over to the office, plowing past the secretary who tried to keep her out. Dima opened her office door to stop the commotion and met a very determined Hedda Hopper, who declared that she wanted to go on the air. What have you got to give it? came the cool reply from the silver-haired executive. Hedda paused a moment, then launched into ribald tales of the film colony. After 30 minutes, Dima stopped Hedda and noted that Hedda had told her more in half an hour than she had learned about Hollywood in a year. They bonded over their father's humble professions, Hedda's as a butcher and Dima's a horse trader. When Dima submitted Hedda's name on the talent list, the New York executives shot back that they were in the business of youth. They had no room for a has-been. Dima ignored the suits back east and looked for a sponsor. Hedda learned a great deal from Dima over the years. They were lifelong friends. One of Hedda's problems in Hollywood, Dima lectured, was that a producer or a director would approach and say he wanted Hedda in his picture, and she would say yes without bothering to ask about the money. At one point, she had Hedda at the going rate of $1,000 per radio appearance. As a favor to a friend, Hedda had agreed to do a radio show without realizing that the pay was only a kitchen mixer. She appealed to Dima to fix the contract, but Dima held firm. No, she told Hedda, work for your mixer, and then maybe you'll remember the lessons that I'm trying to teach you. After Dima left NBC, she worked as Hedda's business manager for the standard 10%. Dima had told a friend that the 10% she earned a year with Hedda, plus the new Cadillac that Hedda bought her every other year, more than equaled what she had made with NBC. In 1936, when she waited for Dima to put a radio deal together, Hedda accompanied Frances Marion to England, where she was under contract to adapt Night Without Armor for Marlena Dietrich. Hedda tagged along and hoped to find some work. She lived in a small attic room in the Savoy for a few dollars a day, since she hardly had the same circumstances as she did in her last European tour when she was flush with money from the stock market. One night, Hedda had attempted to dine in the restaurant in the Savoy and was stopped by the maitre d'. He told her that ladies and hats were not permitted at that hour. Hedda removed her hat, but not the controversy that followed. What was the rule about ladies and hats exactly, and who started it, people asked. Could a lady wear flowers pinned in her hair? Did that qualify as a hat, or did there have to be a brim? Hedda's hat made front-page news. She didn't land any roles on stage or screen in England, so instead she opted to chaperone Frances Marion's boys back to the States for the beginning of the school year. 
of her trip had noted that she learned an important lesson from the Brits, that your outlook had a direct impact on your bank balance. Dima Harshbarger had a radio show ready to start production, sponsored by the Marrow Oil Shampoo, which gave Hedda $150 a week. Hedda faltered in the show. She had 15 minutes worth of flattery each week and nothing that really made the show stand out. Hedda blamed the show's failure on her phony British accent, the one that Wolfie drilled into her years ago. After three months were up, the show was not renewed. Dima did not give up on her client. She put Hedda into a radio show called Brent House. Hedda played a successful attorney with two children to raise. She did the show for a year, which softened the phony accent. After the radio drama, she did another gossip show sponsored by a prune company. Ken Carpenter, the announcer, and an industry veteran helped Hedda relax and ease into a natural voice that suited her and helped build an audience. Hedda noted the logic of showbiz. If you were working, you were good and talented. If you weren't, you stunk. She waited months between jobs and then would catch three or four offers at the same time. At the end of 1937, Howard Denby from Esquire Features rang Hedda and asked to meet. She didn't know why Denby wanted to meet or how Esquire fit into the picture. Denby explained that he had spent a year looking for a woman to write a syndicated column on Hollywood. Denby had asked Andy Hervey in the MGM publicity department for help. Hervey replied that he didn't know if she could write, but when they wanted the lowdown on one of their stars, they went to Hedda Hopper. Hedda knew the owners of the LA Times, Norman Chandler and his wife, socially. The Chandlers didn't know that Hedda signed a deal to write a column until the managing editor, L.D. Hotchkiss, sent a note asking if he could add Hedda's name to their paper. Hotchkiss remembered Hedda's radio programs and recalled that if she ever wrote a column, he would not only want to read it, he would want to buy it. Gratified that she would have a start in her hometown press, Hedda went to Hotchkiss's office to seal the deal. He said he wanted to have a look at her before they signed. She didn't just hand over a portfolio to the editor behind the desk. She took out a lorgnette from her handbag and gave a dramatic reading, complete with hand gestures. Hotchkiss was in stitches. Entertained by Hedda's performance, the editor followed protocol and sent the sample columns Hedda brought to the department heads for their feedback, even though he had already hired her and made up his mind. One man, whom Hedda would not name, though she retained his memo, wrote, Badly written. No news value. Might be all right for a small town weekly. Has nothing to offer a great metropolitan newspaper like the Times. One year later, Hedda was in New York at a publisher's convention. She dined with Chandler and Hotchkiss. A photo of the trio was taken later in El Morocco. When the picture was published, the caption read, Hedda Hopper and two friends. Oh, how the tides had turned. At the start of her column, Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, which first appeared in the LA Times and 13 other newspapers on Valentine's Day, 1938, she vowed to put scandal in mothballs and only write the good. Frances Marion had advised Hedda not to bite the hand that fed her caviar. But after her column launched and failed to make an impact, Ida Coverman gave Hedda different advice. In the first month, Hedda struggled to develop her voice. Ida told Hedda that everyone in town was laughing at her. She should stop being nice and start telling the truth. Ida and Hedda had been friends for years. Ida considered Hedda, she said, a clever actress with a brilliant mind and that there was never a dull moment wherever she happens to be. After she had the byline Hedda Hopper's Hollywood for two months, Ida Coverman hosted a cat party in Hedda's honor. She was arguably the most powerful woman in Hollywood at the time, Ida Coverman. 
She was gatekeeper for Louis B. Mayer. She was also an unrivaled talent scout, having discovered Jeanette McDonald, Robert Taylor, Judy Garland, and other MGM talent. Ida invited the top stars, such as Joan Crawford, Norma Shearer, and others to the party for Hedda, which sent clear notice about they, who they should be giving tips to, and it wasn't Luella. Once she put a little salt on her tongue, Hedda's column took off. She noted that once she let the juicy items drop, her phone never stopped ringing. One of the first big hits she had was a piece on the Hollywood cast system, where a star on 5000 a week wouldn't be caught dead at the same table with a contract player on $100 a week. Publicity men from the major studios held a luncheon for Hedda and assured her they were at her disposal. Many people in the film colony were happy to see a rival pull the rug out from under Luella Parsons. Louis B. Mayer made a fatal mistake of assuming that Hedda would be easy to manipulate. He must have forgotten that when he chased her around his desk, it never worked out how he expected. Hedda dove into her work and thrived. Bill was grown. She had no husband or distractions. She didn't believe in time off or holidays. On her aversion to holidays, Hedda noted that she was too much of a ham not to want to pick up the paper in the morning and find out what Hedda Hopper has to say. At long last came the validation she desired, every single day in black and white. Hedda worked like a dog, perhaps haunted by the fear that her success would disappear if she ever took a break. She worked reportedly 130 hours a week. She filed seven columns a week, wrote a monthly article for the fan magazines, and broadcast a weekly radio show that developed into three times a week. She collected items for the column from the minute she woke until midnight without rest. She once rang celebrated photographer and lifelong friend George Harrell. My God, George, help me out. Got any dirt? I've got to get this damn column out every day, and it ain't easy. In the studio publicity departments, the items were parceled out to Luella and Hedda on roughly a 60-40 split. Luella had been at it longer and had the advantage even after she lost her 48-hour exclusive. As a result, Hedda scrambled for her tips. She had a network of tipsters that rivaled Luella's and maybe, in some cases, Hedda benefited from the decades in front of the camera, where she was on loan out so often that she developed connections across major studios. Hedda saved the best gossip for the radio, where her show aired three times a week from 1939, thinking she was safer from libel suits if she didn't put the items into print. One way she outfoxed the lawyers who examined her copy before she went on air was to rely on her delivery. On paper, an item might look perfectly harmless, but the way she used her voice to mock, embellish, or layer sarcasm on top, changed everything. When the lawyers caught on to her trick, they used their own to stop her. Holding her script, an attorney would ask Hedda how she intended to read it. She replied she would read it straight, to which the suit replied that she had to show him. Then he told her he had witnesses to prove she gave her word on a reading. Hedda Hopper held a radio program from 1939 to 1947. Her signature sign-off was, Good afternoon to some of you, good evening to more of you, and good luck to all of you. Initially, Hedda worked from her small bungalow before moving to a five-room office located in in Hollywood and Vine in 1939. Hedda had a rewrite woman, two legmen, two secretaries, and two women to handle the fan mail, plus Dima Harshbarger as her business manager. She hired Gertrude Shanklin from Metro's story department and High Gardner, one of her legmen, from the New York Herald Tribune. Speck McClure was a Phi Beta Kappa and her most trusted legman reporter. The place was a bit chaotic, Hedda noted, like Grand Central Station with three exits. 
Speck McClure recalled that Hedda became a success because she could sell her column at the newspaper conventions. The bottom line, McClure noted, was that people loved listening to Hedda's gossip. He said her interview subjects asked her questions. They would be completely drawn in and absorbed by her animated storytelling. As long as it wasn't about them, they were riveted. McClure pointed out that even someone like Spencer Tracy was bewitched by Hedda's juicy tales, that he loved to hear every dirty detail. Pamela Mason, James Mason's wife, had once told someone from Time and was quoted that Hedda's column was ghostwritten. Speck McClure wrote a letter to Time attesting the authorship of Hedda's columns to his boss, whom he advised if she wished to sue both Time and Pamela Mason that he would be the first one on the stand. Luella Parsons believed that Frances Marion ghost wrote Hedda's columns for her and ended her friendship with Frances. Though since Frances was part of her center circle, she couldn't cut her off entirely. Speck McClure and the women in Hedda's office noted that she didn't have the patience or inclination to sit down and type out a column. She dictated them to a secretary. Dima Harshbarger or Speck McClure would blue pencil any items that might bring a liable charge. When Hedda dictated her columns to a secretary, she gave a performance. She paced the room and acted out the details. She was a fountain of energy. A secretary noted that Hedda was thrilled by the sound of a clacking typewriter and that she would have been happiest if a typewriter had flashing lights, bells, and whistles. Perhaps because of her central location, open to the public, Hedda's office received a steady stream of visitors. Actors stopped by looking for work or a good word, or they dropped by to give her juicy tidbits about the film colony as a way to get into her good graces. One of Hedda's legmen, Jake Rosenstein, described her office suite. The atmosphere is that of a combination newspaper office, junk shop, wardrobe closet, and theatrical dressing room. There are hats and hat boxes, a dress hanging precariously over a door, a broken lamp, an old period chair lacking one arm, a beat old sofa, shelves disorderly piled with all kinds of books and bric-a-brac, and a great weather-beaten old desk cluttered with hundreds of fan and business letters, paste jars, pencils, scissors, notebooks, magazines, lipsticks, compacts, hairpins, and a silk stocking with a bad run. Speck McClure recalled that although Hedda might be completely exhausted by the end of the day, each morning she would arrive at the office full of energy with a pile of books in her arm, ready with a new idea. If she didn't have one, he might spur her on by saying something like, we couldn't do anything on Greer Garson, could we? To which Hedda would snap at the bait, animated by a perceived obstacle. She would find an angle or story. On her role as a columnist in the studio system, Hedda took only partial credit for making a star. She wrote, I've been asked many times if a columnist ever made a star. My answer is no. No single person can make a star. Of course you can help, but stardom is compounded by many elements. There must be personality or intelligence or provocative talent. You can snatch a girl from the ribbon counter, hire a press agent, dress her, teach her to walk and talk, give her a party, yes, put her name in lights maybe once or twice, but it's something else that keeps her name there. Hedda Hopper never abandoned her career as an actress. She was a born performer. She just transferred her dramatic arts to the newspaper pages once her column grew in popularity. Perhaps the low point of her career, if not for her 10th billing in Dracula's Daughter from 1936, 
came when she played Joan Bennett's mother in the color production Vogues of 1938. This is the origin of Hedda's feud with Joan Bennett that led to the infamous St. Valentine's Day skunk incident, which I'll tell you about in part six of this series. On the last day of the production shot in 1937, the producer Walter Wanger scheduled Hedda's close-ups at the end of the day after five o'clock. For an older actress, and Hedda was 52 at the time of shooting, it was a cruel prospect. Directors often used end-of-the-day close-ups as a threat to keep aging stars in line. It guaranteed that she would not look her best. She would be tired after 12 hours of work, harried, hungry. If you were an uncredited supporting player like Hedda, you would be wearing the same makeup from 6 o'clock that morning so your skin would look dry and haggard. Wanger insisted that Hedda subject herself to the camera's pitiless gaze at the close of day. She pleaded with him to put it off until the following morning. She would do it for nothing. It wouldn't cost him anything. She just didn't feel well, wasn't up to it. Wanger insisted she would have to do it, that it would put them behind schedule and increase costs because he would need to pay the crew extra to light and shoot the close-ups. Joan Bennett was impatient and wanted the whole thing over with. Had a hoped for an appeal woman-to-woman might win her a reprieve, it didn't. Hedda submitted to the close-up shots. Afterwards, she returned to her dressing room, felt dizzy, and for the first time in her life, she fainted and fell to the floor. When she woke up, she called for help, but the soundstage was dark and empty. Everyone had gone home. She felt desperately alone and totally exhausted. Hedda asked the man at the front gate to bring her a taxi. At home, she called a doctor. I can't imagine how bereft she felt. Hedda had 21 years of experience in front of a camera. She must have felt, is this how it ends? My name not even appearing on screen? Alone and unconscious on the studio floor? After her column took off, evidence of Hedda's change in fortune appears in her screen credits. She went from uncredited appearances in Nothing Sacred in 1937 and Vogues of 1938 to small roles in two of the best pictures of the prestigious year 1939. For my money, Midnight and the Women are the best pictures from the close of a decade of outstanding films. Midnight is perfect, and the women would be perfect if it were 15 minutes shorter. Hedda recalled that when Mitch Lyson rang to invite her to join his exclusive cast of A-listers, she howled like a hound under a full moon and took off running. Remember that she was wild about Jack Barrymore since the 1920s. Now, by 1939, Jack had thrown his beauty away with both hands, but even as a dissipated old goat, his charm is undeniable. When he wags a gin-soaked eyebrow, ladies still swoon. Mary Astor, in the picture, who worked with Hedda Hopper for Don Juan, Holiday and Midnight, noted, To those of you who remember Hedda only as a caustic tongue columnist who wore eccentric hats, I must say in those days she was a most attractive actress. Though never a big star, she always lent an air of great chic to a role. She dressed beautifully, and she came on with manner, wit, and a cool wisdom. Hedda cites her role in Midnight as the only nice character she ever played on screen, which is pretty funny, since she was blasé about turfing an old woman out into a rain-soaked night for being an imposter. Hedda's society dame doesn't bat one eyelash at the Archduchess of Mendola's public humiliation. It's the lawsuit for 50000 that sticks in her craw. What's not to love about Hedda in this picture? She introduces a puffed-up musician, trades bitchy remarks in a hat shop, then leads a conga line at the weekend party in Versailles. Hedda offered to do the women for nothing, 
And initially, QCOR had sent over a contract with a low salary scale until Dima Harshbarger rang and gave her an earful about the lessons she'd been trying to teach her and to leave the money to her. Hedda did. By the 1940s, Hedda made 5000 a week when she signed for a picture. When she joined that cast of 134 women for George Cukor's masterpiece, Hedda was delighted to invite her former employer, Elizabeth Arden, to the set one day to view the enormous salon set that was based on her New York flagship. Arden apparently went ballistic at what she viewed as copyright infringement. In her one scene during the powder room showdown, Hedda stood out in a room full of scene stealers. In a butterfly getup designed by Adrian, had quips, Oh, hello, girls. My, but you look lovely. Got any dirt for the column? The dialogue could have been taken from any Saturday night in the Macombo. In 1940 and 1942, Hedda filed a series of shorts for Paramount Studio adapted from her column, Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, to the big screen. Her income had jumped to over $100,000 a year. When she was cast to play aunt to Paulette Goddard and DeMille's Reap the Wild Wind, she reveled at being in her element. Hedda noted, give an actress a whiff of grease paint, give her a chance to get her little toe on stage, and she's off her trolley. DeMille wanted her to faint in the picture, which probably wouldn't have been too hard since she was put into a corset that was half her waist size. For three weeks, Hedda took lessons on fainting from Laura Hope Cruz and Ethel Barrymore. She practiced falling into a swoon from the left, the right, backward, and on the bias. When the day came on set, she fell backwards gracefully. DeMille yelled to cut and print, Hedda objected to only doing it once. DeMille closed the subject. One faint hopper. Variety magazine reported on a feud between Luella and Hedda in 1941, which developed in the radio station where they each recorded their shows. Paulette Goddard had been in the studio to rehearse for one of Luella's broadcasts. Hedda traveled down the hall to visit. While she was there, Luella refused to continue until she left. The War of the Words, as it was called, was an entertaining version of the larger political conflicts of the Second World War. The following year, an article in Variety celebrated the end of Luella's monopoly on Hollywood exclusives. They ran the headline, The Queen is Dead, Long Live the Queen!, By 1942, studio publicists gave a weekly luncheon for Hedda, as they had always done for Luella, to hand over items for the column. Also in 1942, Hedda signed a big deal with the Chicago Tribune New York News Syndicate, which extended her readership to just under 6 million daily. Luella still had her beat with 17 million readers a day, but she had a head start. Luella noted around this time that Hedda was trying to do in two years what it had taken her 30 to accomplish. Hedda Hopper's prestige as a columnist soared thanks to a campaign by Henry Luce. Luce was not only the founder and publisher of Time magazine, Life magazine, and Fortune magazine, he considered William Randolph Hearst a mortal enemy. Plus, he liked Hedda Hopper on a personal level. He authorized coverage in Life and Time that publicized a rivalry between Hedda and Luella, which characterized Hedda as a plucky underdog heroine and painted Luella as an overly entitled villain who owed her success to Hearst. A profile in Life from 1941 headlined, Life Goes to a Hollywood House Moving, chronicled Hedda's move from her tiny bungalow on Fairfax Avenue to a mansion in Tropical Avenue, Beverly Hills. Life praised her transition to columnists, noting she had two qualities that put her at the top of gossip writers. She has been in movies for 25 years, and she never forgets. 
Life reported on the celebrity friends who helped how to move, including Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell, Robert Stack, and Anna Mae Wong. Roz Russell bought her a rubbish pail as a housewarming gift. Anna Mae Wong lit firecrackers around the new home to ward off bad spirits. In 1942, Time magazine ran an article that positioned Hedda as a Cinderella figure who had grit and talent. By contrast, the article presented Luella Parsons as a hack who owed her success to her employer, William Randolph Hearst. The author praised Hedda for her beauty and figure and slated Luella for being dumpy and overweight. It was brutal. Hedda managed to outscoop Luella frequently once her column gained traction. Perhaps the reason that she caught the big scoop of Clark and Carol tying the knot was that she had been cast with Gable during his first big year in Hollywood for The Easiest Way in 1931. And Hedda worked with Carol earlier in The Racketeer, which was made in 1929. No doubt the film colony regarded Hedda as one of their own, and they understood her move to writing a column as a way she could stay working and relevant within an industry that had little room or placed little value on women past 50. She broke national news when she reported on the impending divorce of the president's son, James Roosevelt. Hedda had caught wind of the rumor and then marched to his hotel room and demanded to know the truth if he was shacking up with this nurse. Few people had the nerves of steel required to exit an interrogation from Hedda Hopper without spilling everything she wanted to know. Hedda noted, I put gossip in the same category as news. Hedda caught the scoop on Gable's enlistment with a tip from a dentist who had made an extra set of dentures. She connected the dots for the new set of chompers as a backup to take away on service, and she was proved right. When Hedda heard that Bing Crosby was carrying on with a starlet in the Waldorf, she rang the hotel's press agent and insisted that he put Crosby on the line. Crosby swore nothing was going on and then followed up with a long letter to ensure her that he hadn't taken advantage of a young girl. Hedda felt protective of young starlets against a litany of wolves who waited for them in Hollywood. But she adored some of those wolves, particularly Clark Gable, no matter what he did. Hedda developed a reputation that brought stars to heel. If Hedda rang Gable on set, he would stop production and take her call. During one film, producer Arthur Hornblow fumed while Gable sat in his dressing room chatting with Hedda, but he didn't interrupt or say anything because of her influence. For other wolves in Hollywood, Hedda used her column like a snare or a shotgun. In 1941, Hedda published an open letter in her column. She wrote, this is written for just one girl in Hollywood. I don't know who you are. You haven't been discovered yet, but I can tell you there's a luscious package waiting for you labeled fame. A gentleman named Charlie Chaplin will be sending it over when he's ready. I think you should know what's in it. You'll be that lucky girl chosen by Chaplin to play the top feminine role in Shadows and Substance. It's your chance, the opportunity of a lifetime. You'll be living in a dream world of shining limousines, sables, and exploding flashbulbs. All that will be in your tinseled package. Something more, too. Something not quite so good. The tradition of the chaplain leading ladies has taken a definite pattern. You were nobody when he discovered you. You were sitting on top of the world for a few months, and then you were nobody again. Hedda's fable carries the unvarnished truth about Chaplin's history as a serial sex pest. Two years later, a young woman contacted her. She explained because of that article Hedda had written. She was the girl with the tinseled package. 
Chaplin had chosen Joan Barry as his leading lady for shadow and substance. As was his pattern, their affair began shortly afterwards. The following year, he tried to break it off. Joan objected to being tossed aside. Two days before Christmas, in 1942, Joan Barry arrived at Chaplin's door. She carried a gun, which she turned on herself, threatening to end her life. Chaplin talked her down, took away the gun, and told her to leave. Joan Barry went to New York initially, but returned to Los Angeles in May of 1943, telling Chaplin that she was pregnant and he was the father. Barry thought she could make Chaplin marry her by threatening to go public with the story. At this point, she contacted Hedda, who arranged a doctor's exam to confirm the pregnancy. That same evening, Barry returned to Chaplin's house and demanded that he take responsibility for the baby and marry her. Chaplin was already involved with Una O'Neill, the teenage daughter of playwright Eugene O'Neill. He wanted nothing to do with Joan Barry and rang the police. She was arrested and sentenced to 30 days. When Joan Barry filed a paternity suit in June 1943, Hedda used her column to attack Chaplin as a serial rogue who ruined more than one girl. She asked what would happen of Joan and her baby. In other columns, she attacked Chaplin's left-wing politics and questioned why he had never become an American citizen. She wondered why he denied that he was Jewish. At the time, the FBI were investigating the case and Hedda met with agents and gave them information. Ultimately, the case was dropped because blood tests revealed that Chaplin was not the father of Joan Barry's baby. By the skin of his teeth, he skated out of that mess because he had put more than one young girl in trouble in the past. As a way to salvage the damage to his reputation, he married Una O'Neill in June 1943. He was 54, she was 18. He gave the scoop to Luella Parsons. You may recall in the last episode when I told you about the time that Sidney Skolsky bit Luella Parsons on the arm during lunch in Chasen's, and it wasn't because he was starving. Luella and Hedda inspired a violent reaction from some men. Hedda received hers from Joseph Cotton. In his memoir, Joe Cotton recalled the time that he was overworked between the studio and radio programs. One Sunday night, his only day off, his friends advised him over drinks to spend the night in the studio dressing room to get more sleep than driving home before the morning scheduled the studio. According to his version, before he fell asleep in his dressing room, he noticed a studio guard outside the door. Innocently, when he went alone to breakfast, he just so happened to run into his co-star, Deanna Durbin, standing at a counter finishing her breakfast. She told him the studio guards were policing her door to make sure he had stayed out. She also spent the night in her dressing room. The guards had no doubt carried the item to Hedda Hopper, who published news of their affair in her column. Joe Cotton's story sounds so fishy that I expected it to be wrapped in newspaper. There's just too much detail, and it's as overwritten as a bad excuse you palm off on the wife. Cotton recalled that he rang Hedda Hopper and promised to kick her in the ass if she ever printed his name again. At a swanky dinner to celebrate the vice president, Joe Cotton spotted Hedda sitting at a table. He noted that the chairs were wicker on the bottom. He walked up behind her and swung his foot into her backside. He imagined his kick held enough force to shake the blooms in her bonnet. Cotton reports that afterward, Walter Wanger and a gang carried him on their shoulders into the bar and toasted him with good champagne. Why does an adult man brag about kicking a woman who is nearly 60 years old? Cotton denied the affair up and down. Yet his old pal, Orson Welles, confessed that Cotton had been sleeping with Deanna Durbin in cars, in daylight, where everybody could see, he said. 
Later, when Hedda gave Cary Grant a hard time in her column, Joe Cotton sent him a shoe by post and suggested that he plant it in Hedda's rear end. I should note that Joe and Hedda reconciled and enjoyed each other's friendship. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for episode 82, part five of the Luella and Hedda series.